Okay, hello again, everybody. Welcome to the Murmurations podcast. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Ben Lamb, a senior lecturer at Teesside University. Morning, Ben. Hello, hello, hello. Um, ben, you'll get that reference in a minute, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Ben's teaching and research specialises in media, history and social class, and he's going to talk today about social class and the welfare state in relation to his research and teaching. So, um, this is the second episode of Murmurations podcast and uh, Ben's got a little job today because I've, I've, I'm learning on the job and I noticed in the first podcast that I kept spinning around on my chair and never looking at the screen and wobbling the camera when I was taking notes and all sorts so uh, Ben can shout at me if I'm doing any annoying things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and stay still this, this, this time. Um, but yeah. Um, some of you might recognise Ben as somebody that I've frequently uh, uh, wound up on Facebook and beaten many times at FIFA and all those other fun things. But we're going to try and be sens sensible today and have a good have a good chat. So, um, how you doing, Ben? Good, thanks. I'm, uh, it's funny you're talking about your room. I've got like a light bulb just above my head, so oh, yeah. it looks like I've got constant ideas although the light bulb isn't switched on so <laughs> that's a good metaphor to start with <laughs> it just shows how i'm full of shit content oh brilliant we were supposed to we were supposed to uh, furnish this room but then lockdown happened so i've just been in a i'm just in a bare room like a padded sort of cell where i think you know is, is my ideas are my ideas actually producing anything of worth but hopefully we'll find out today yeah yeah well like this this poster behind me uh is completely deliberate I just couldn't handle at the start of lockdown when we all started having meetings. I couldn't handle the fact that I had nothing but a magnolia wall behind me. So yeah. I, put, I put something up to try and make me look like a vaguely exciting, interesting person. Um, we are going to talk about quite a few things today. Uh, what I want to start with is a conversation about your book. Mm -hmm. So you've just published a book called, here it is. You're Nicked, which is about British uh, television series about police. Give us a couple of examples of different time periods where those television programmes really reflect something about the, the society in which they're, they're, they're appearing. So the context in which they appear and the time and place in which they're shown. Sure. So I'd probably start with the, the 1960s, really. So the most popular series then in Britain uh, was Zedcars. Um, and and it, a quarter of the world's population w were watching every uh, every night it, that, it, that it was broadcast. And what's interesting about Zedcars is that I think it reflects the progressive mindset of, of general society at the time. So um, if we applied criminal criminological theory to Zedcars, it was really invested in deviant subculture theory, uh, which falls under the um, umbrella of the predestined actor model in criminology and effectively it, what that series is saying is that people who pe criminals aren't all evil we need to have this societal debate as to what um, what societal pressures push somebody into committing crime so it can be a number of things and even subculture theories this idea that um, you have people at the, the lower end of society who don't have the same opportunities as the middle and, and upper class uh, people and the re often the reason people uh, commit crime is because 
they're so they're told that you as part of the society you have to aspire to achieve all these things like the, the house the car um because obviously consumerism starts to become an, an important aspect of 1960s life and culture you need to buy all these cultural amenities yet people at the bottom of the ladder don't have the resources or uh, the know-how or the means with which to achieve them so often people uh, can cause cause crime as a result as a result of resentment or as a way of uh, achieving success so it's really um, and said cause is a good series in that way it was also brian blessed's first ever acting role as one of the police officers which is a good fact for you uh, but yeah it's trying to have this play out this cultural uh, criminological debate because in the 1960s um there was there was a really important social study uh, that was published called the rediscovery of poverty which showed that actually a lot of people in society were living in poverty when the definition got changed to relative poverty that was a huge difference uh, before the 1960s poverty was just measured in terms of um ha ha whether you could, had enough money to eat basically and your physical condition Where, whereas in the 60s it gets changed to well you know what you're, you're actually living in relative poverty if you don't have enough money for a washing machine if you don't have enough money to go to the cinema you're not a part of society so social participation yeah yeah exactly so and then uh, another example would be the 70s where it completely changes uh, in the 1970s um and i think i think that's probably i think we're quite a conservative uh, with a small c um culture in britain and i think a large part of that is because uh, of law and order policy in the 70s so in the 70s you have the sweeney which is a series that a lot of people are probably uh, familiar with and that really adopts the rational actor model of criminology which is the idea that the way in which you solve crime is you give offenders the harshest penalty possible you clamp down hard uh, as soon as possible and that should wipe out crime in society Tr treat all criminals as in uh, as totally and wholly responsible for what they've done treat them as harshly as possible and, and that's what happens in the Sweeney. And it, it's it's effectively it's an action series, and it was sh uh, it's shot on film cameras in colour, and it's all about the thrill of the chase. And there's really one interesting episode where you find out a guy's uh, committed armed robbery to pay for an operation for one of his for his sick child, and you think, oh, maybe that's trying to say something complex here. Uh, but at the end of the episode, you find out he's a, he was a horrible father. He's he commits crime just for the hell of it. And it, it's not really willing to have that debate. So I think those two decades are, are quite uh, are really evocative of, of what was going on. That's um, really interesting because it's it's sometimes difficult to try and talk about crime or people in in those contexts. So the idea that uh, people are products of the society in which they live. Um, mm. It's often it's often confused as making excuses for criminality or trying to excuse away things yeah. that are wrong rather mm -hmm. than what it's really trying to do which is understand the reasons not to say that people aren't don't have any responsibility because they do but there are many reasons why people do a lot of the things that they do especially when we look at the, you know, in relation to addiction and things like that as well um, yeah of course on the point about social class, I just wanted to move on to another project that you did recently called Rewinding the Welfare State. Mm. So if I remember rightly, Rewinding the Welfare State was an archival film um, that looked back at the ways in which representations of the welfare state in previous 
um, mm. me was it media campaigns or or in the press or what could you just talk yeah. a bit about that project just tell us what it involved yeah so putting my historical hat on when I, whenever you read histories of the welfare state i often found that it's quite it can you get two things you either get a very national narrative about this law was introduced and this is what happened across the country or you can get like get pockets of uh, regional studies of how it how um the introduction of a welfare state and its changes over the years may have impacted a specific town or community or region but i think um regional television and regional films and um audiovisual content which may have been produced regionally by unions or businesses or whatever have always played an, a vital part of that debate um so I, what i did was i worked closely with the northeast film archive that are actually based at Teesside university and they have all sorts of interesting collections they have uh local films they have the itv and yeah they have the itv time tees stuff uh, and that ranging from documentaries to information films to news broadcasts and how and showing you exactly um, how it was debated and what what was important to local communities so what i did was um i put together what i thought well i went through all their vaults and their archives and i put together what i hoped was a compelling narrative and just approached as many uh, towns as i could throughout the, the northeast so i managed to tour it to about 15 different towns um sorry 15 different venues in a number of different towns throughout throughout the region for, ranging from uh, independent cin cinemas museums art centers and it was fascinating i got um i got a range of different audiences from up to 115 people to like 10 people in, in a library but overall i managed to interest and and get sell about 800 tickets in total so it does really resonate and i think the reason for that is um every show was different so i had an overall narrative which was that rather than just say oh you know this happened in the 1940s and then this has happened which is sort of what ken loach's spirit of 45 does and it's it's almost like a done-to-death narrative if you just, just do it chronologically so what i did was i i i structured it around a person's life so i i started how it works it's it, it's sort of like a a lecture but with with long clips and it works really well so can't really you can't really tour archival footage i would say without um some sort of uh, context and curation and saying this is important right. in this way and i'm going to take you on this history and i'm going to take out clips because if you just put a show reel together without talking you, you don't really you don't, it, it, people don't necessarily stay focused on know what they're looking for because you know a lot of archival footage is it doesn't really make any sense it, it can be that old and just on its own so um how it was structured was it was through a person's life so the first part of the film we look at um the nhs which is obviously when you first come into the world it's it, it, it's through the, the, the hospital infrastructure in this country then i look at schooling which people often forget as being part of the welfare state that that it's the nation it's the state's responsibility to, to educate you and give you the best possible start in life then i look at housing as well that which you know the, the state still has a responsibility to give you a home uh, i then look at work and and, and benefits um and retirement as well so i thought let, let's let's take the journey of somebody's life rather than just chronological 1930s now and then, yeah how different and it worked and it worked really well actually i think people re really respond to um that but also each show was different so I, I would i would go into regional archives from that particular town or county and and, and just pepper it with like really specific humanistic 
uh, stories. But that's what's important, what you just said there, the, the human element. Because when you were yeah. explaining this, I was thinking, yes, the narrative element and the curation is really important. And that, that, that curation helps guide the audience through. But yeah. giving it that personalised uh, context what the, that really points to the, 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 the time and place of the audience you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important. Uh, and as well, it's just disrupting this, this narrative that we often hear about the welfare state. Um, the, you know, people will immediately want to jump to, oh, wow, this, this, I, do, I agree with the welfare state, but there's too many benefit cheats. And it, it, it's immediately talked about in these ways. And we don't actually think about it in terms of other examples that you've just given, which are so many things that we take for granted as well, right through from the uh, yeah in life in the nhs although the conversation around the nhs is obviously changing now um yeah, yeah. go on sorry I, uh, oh yeah i was just going to say that was really important to its success as well it was there was no i wasn't being a social justice warrior there was no political with a capital p ideological agenda it was i was being true to the as history as possible saying this legislation occurred and um it resulted in these the these tangible changes to society which we can see in these films which people are talking about and and there was clearly a change at this point this that and the other so um, you know it didn't matter whether you know people forget the post-war settlement established in the 1940s was the idea no matter which political party you're a member of or whatever political party happened to be in government it still had a duty to provide people with these basic human rights and it doesn't matter whether it was Rav C. Butler's 1944 Education Act, who, he, he was a Tory MP who believed that people in this country deserved a decent standard of education no matter what their, what their class or creed and it doesn't matter whether it was Nye Bevan's 1946 National Health Service Act that, that meant we could access healthcare the quality of healthcare didn't depend on how rich we were um, it was it was a cross-party mission which starts to get slowly unraveled so how do people at the shows that you you're making you sound like a superstar now rocking around <laughs> in the northeast my world tour when you went on your tour how did people respond what i mean were there any negative audience responses did you have anyone having a go at you and calling you a dirty little socialist <laughs> no no that which was which was fast which was fascinating actually um yeah i think i think people just responded to the to the personal stories and a, a lot of a lot of people seeing sort of people they might have known or the the, the town that they're from in a, in a previous were they surprised time. were they surprised by some of the stuff that you drew attention to yeah yeah definitely um i, I suppose i'm sure because there was like a question and answer session at the end of, of each one and uh, no one ever said you know oh this is a socialist agenda or anything like that i think people <laughs> people recognize that they have they use these services and have depended on these services at, at, at what at many stages in the life um through the life hard working life that they've had yeah yeah um i, I think that's yeah. great that general audiences as well attended in whether it was 10 or 150 or whatever yeah i think it's really good because it, again it it sort of um it breaks down that myth that 
academics are off with their head in the clouds coming up with crazy wacky theories and doing pointless analysis and stuff in yeah. ways that nobody was... nobody can relate to or connect with or understand it's just obviously we know that's not true and people don't give mainstream audiences enough credit to be honest they they're, they're engaged <laughs> with a lot more than i think people commonly acknowledge yeah i just want... felt that on the ground during your tour yeah i just wanted to t tell a really interesting story and show what what communities have have, have been through and why it's yeah. important why it's important to have that debate so it was a good way of actually uh bringing people together i would say you know i don't, yeah. I don't know people's political allegiances were they, it was just the questions tended to be more about uh, they wanted to know more facts really i wanted to know more about the research journey i've gone on, on and uh uh yeah all, all sorts um it shows as well it shows as well why archival material is so important too yeah especially when we've got that that sector has been really the museum sector and mm. has been, the cultural sector more broadly has been really hit badly by current circumstances and it's something we really need to to protect um and keep maintaining the kind of those 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 archives and access to the archives um, is really important it's another thing that we could really something really precious that we could lose if we let it slip off our radar mm. um i'm more conscious of time so we've still got some time left um i was just going to ask you in terms of the region specific stuff recently you've done something about ridley scott i didn't realize that ridley scott grew up in the northeast and actually grew up really close to where you live yeah uh, Do you briefly tell us about that do you want to tell us about the ridley scott stuff yeah i'm just uh i'm basically just publishing an article on uh i want i want to how do i put this so yeah ridley scott is often people are slightly aware aware he's british but he's just if you say the word ridley scott people just think of you know one of the world's most successful hollywood film directors having yeah, made yeah. alien gladiator and all the rest of it blade runner um whereas actually yeah uh he's he's a northeastern lad grew up in 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 stockton and uh, i think his his well it fits to the welfare state really well actually you know he, he comes from very humble beginnings his dad worked in uh was a shipping merchant right. um he, he ridley scott was due to go on national service in the 1950s and his dad actually said do you know what you're really good at drawing you're going to take up this scholarship and go to the um hartlepool art college which is now the, the northern school of art he did a year there succeeded then got a scholarship to do to go to the um royal college of art in london and uh yeah then he, he couldn't have got to where he is without these uh without this you know state subsidized assistance and if you think what there's, there's probably ridley scott out there now on on the same on, on the same street with, with the same humble beginnings who won't necessarily have the help and aid they need to be as successful so but the purpose of my article it's not a social justice warrior point i just don't think it fits back into what all my research interests are quite nicely um if you read any scholarship on ridley scott in a nutshell it says oh anything we don't need to look at what he made as, as a young man and the experimental films he did and the work his early work as a young man at bbc let's just start this this study with his first film the jewelist or his second film alien and see how his authorial signature has developed whereas i say actually hang on let's take a step back that ideologically his stuff is very social realist it might not look it but um 
with with his background, the people the people he lived with, and you know he worked with. Uh, he had the same sort of journey in in his earlier years that Ken Loach did, but they're, they're completely different filmmakers. But there's still a similar ideological ideas there, and also his his sort of visual iconography uh, comes as a result of the, his early education and the work he did at the BBC. So this obsession with the uncanny, the point of view shot—that's something that is developed in his earlier years that we need to revisit and look back on and see. Oh well, actually. Um, you know, his first, his first, his student film, Boy on Bicycle, there's a lot of similarity to his view of um, politics, the human condition that we see in Blade Runner. So I, I, I look, I look at that journey and hopefully I've changed the debate and the understanding of Ridley Scott as a filmmaker. That's incredible though, that you can take something that we're so familiar with on the big screen, the yeah. big spectacular, as big as it gets Hollywood blockbuster, and then you can break down elements and go right back to the regional and personal yeah. and domestic roots of the director and see that context there in his earliest work that also mm. relates to his social background and all of that stuff. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and just also, I think that story as well, um, of just being aware of how the, the little bits of, of luck and fate in life can just have, like, that are beyond our control. Yeah. So significant to our circumstances, like his dad's decision to say he can't yeah. get a drawing or whatever it was. Um, it actually surprised Ridley as well because his dad was like, you know, fought in the war, was very much a disciplinarian, or, you know, old fashioned type of dad. And he was expecting his dad to say, it's time you go in the military, son. Whereas actually his dad said, uh, no, you've got to follow your, your passion and dreams. And that, which could have been, uh, he said he bases all the strong women in his films on his mother. As, as well, who was uh, a, a very, a very strong-willed woman who may have played a part in that as well. So it, yeah, it's fascinating. And I think you're right. I want to say something about fate as well. I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of luck in luck features in all these things. So mm. I think there's a really important uh, parallel between the Jarrow Crusade in the 1930s and the Hunger Marches that took place in this country, where people, uh, working men marched the breadth of the country to demonstrate about how they didn't have enough money to eat despite working and the reason the Jarrow Crusade got a lot of uh, sympathetic national coverage and is still a demonstration we talk about today which obviously has regional roots here is because randomly a, a stray black Labrador joined the march out of nowhere and, and that really sort of pulled people's heartstrings and thousands of people wrote in offering to, to adopt the dog uh, which I find fascinating and I think there's almost an element that with that with, with Marcus Rashford's campaign actually, um, the the fact that all these different factors needed to come into place at the right time for it to really uh, grab people, grab people's attention. Like the Jarrow Crusade, it wasn't aligned to any political party, any social justice warrior campaign or anything. It was just a, like the Jarrow marchers who walked from Jarrow to London, it was, he's just an honest bloke with humble beginnings who says, you know what, children shouldn't go, hung shouldn't go hungry. And for some reason, that's resonated and cut through all the uh, political uh, personality politics and infighting and bullshit. And like, like you yeah. said, there, there was a lot of that going on in the 1930s, we should remember as well. Uh, you know, you were, in the 1930s, you were either a hard working, to a large degree, you are you are a hardworking Tory or a, a radical uh, communist going on these hunger marches. It, it was a, a very similar political climate then. People had to make a decision: did they want 
a socially responsible form of capitalism with state assistance uh, or did they want fascism and that was a question being asked throughout Europe it was being asked then and you could I, I do think it's being asked now and and it just takes uh, the right sort of campaign with a degree of luck with the, someone understanding how the media works and they can just cut through it and mark yeah. the Jarrow Crusaders managed well and also point again point into to, to personal circumstances that can be beyond our control that yeah. creating that empathy I think empathy is yes. so important and, then the, yeah. and I think the Rashford uh, the Rashford stuff is is connected because it's 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 however he, however or whatever the reasons are for it there there is people seem to have an empathy with mm. the fact that people are living in circumstances that aren't their fault um, yeah. and too often when we had this 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 very individualist way of talking about uh, personal circumstances it's, it's either you're either blamed because it's it's your own fault for not trying hard enough to pull yourself out of difficult circumstances or mm. no element of luck is acknowledged at all if you're in a good position where things have you know you've worked hard but equally things have gone your way or mm. or you've not faced the the, the the kind of challenges that other people face um there's a there's a carl young quote uh that he said the uh the greatest burden a child will carry is the unlived life of its parents and mm. the got thing you said really resonated with that because i think both in you know positive and negative ways we we can't change the the circumstances we're born into and mm equally whilst unfortunate things happen i think that that was a really positive example of the way in which somebody who didn't have opportunities themselves didn't just say to their child just go, go through the path i did they mm. saw their own lack of opportunity and and pushed pushed him in a different direction so um yeah it's really interesting i was going to ask you just just to finish up on a general kind of open question why why is it important then that we as part of media and culture that we continue to scrutinize and, and analyze and study the film and television i just think it's it's absolutely central to our existence and we need to understand it and and, and how it works and and also teach some creativity and how, and play our own part in it i felt like I was facilitating a lot of conversations and, and enhancing people's understanding of history just by finding something in an archive. I suppose, yeah, the media, it's, it's our first point of call for understanding absolutely everything that's going on around us, be it politics, science. Um, usually if there's a scientific discovery or if there's a news story that's happened, that's important. Our, the way in which we understand it is, disseminated through some sort of uh, media platform and that has a really important and all-encompassing uh, part to play in, in how and how we read and understand our position in the world and, and, and an understanding of that I think is, is central and key to our existence as a, as a species, as a people, as, yeah. as a nation. And the, the way in which the stories we tell are reflective of the societies in which they're told so yeah um i think we're out of time but thank you 
fair, I, I was going to get Daisy to say hello to you, but and she wanted to, but she's run off now. So she's got <laughs> a chance, and we've got we've got to go and feed our hens. So we got we got twelve hens yesterday. So we need to go and feed them. So I'll uh, I'll love you and leave Excellent. you. Thank you, Benjamin, and I'll uh, speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye -bye.